0: we hear stories from the life of Christ, it can be easy to miss the full picture. We can carry a mental image of the baby Jesus born in a manger, but can barely begin to comprehend the reality that His life is the point at which all of human history is divided. It's easy to think of Christ as a loving shepherd, but can sometimes be hard to remember He is also the King of Kings. In the Gospels, we see that Christ gave more than was asked, chose compassion over culture, placed love before the law valued potential over a filthy past and exhibited servitude instead of standing on his sovereignty. Pause for a moment. Think what it would be like to walk just a few steps in his shoes, to live your life like he lived his. It's simple, really. All of his actions were based on two simple principles, love God and love people. Everything Christ did, every action that is recorded, every step that he took as he strode bravely towards the cross were based on these two simple principles. It's not easy, but it is the simple gospel.
1: Well, I'm so glad to be with you today and uh, excited that you have joined us. I want to give a big shout out to those of you right now tuning in online and especially those of you right now at our uh, Crossroads West Campus. Last night, you may not know this, we launched our third uh, service on our uh, West Campus and it went tremendous. So from all of us here at Newburgh, let's give everybody at West a hand. Now, you uh, may know leading up to Easter for several weeks, we really challenged you to take some extreme ownership uh, in the church and and what it really looks like for us to not just attend here, but to belong here. And uh, last weekend, Easter was a really big weekend for us. As you probably know, we had uh, nine services between both campuses and God showed up in a huge way because many of you uh, rose to the occasion. We not only had over 421 people, sign up to to give of their time last weekend, but hundreds if not thousands of you invited friends and neighbors and co-workers, and so as a result, together, uh, we welcomed a total of 7,311 people uh, last weekend. Isn't that amazing? So well done, that's more than a number to us here at Crossroads because every number represents a name and every name is an individual who has been made in the image of God who heard last weekend that, that Jesus hasn't given up on them even, even if they have given up on him. And so uh, well done church, it, it is such an honor to be a part of this journey uh, with you. Well, as you know, we're, we're beginning a brand new series today called The Simple Gospel. okay And for the next several weeks, we're going to look at different encounters that people had with Jesus when he lived here on this earth about 2,000 years ago. And, and one thing that we are going to see, no matter the story that we're looking at or the circumstance, is that people never, never left the presence of Jesus the same as when they met him or they bumped into him for the first time. All right, Jesus didn't really meet people's expectations. He always had this ability of exceeding expectations. Now, this is important for us today because whether you know it or not, regardless of of where you might find yourself on the faith spectrum, whether you believe or not, it's only a matter of time until faith, whatever comes to mind when you think of faith, meets where you are at in life and your world comes crashing down, and and it's only a matter of time until your version of Jesus collides with some real-life experience all right, now, Jesus has the ability to walk with us through thick and thin, but the question is, what, what version of Jesus are you following, okay? And, and whenever we look at the real Jesus found in Scripture, we realize pretty quickly that trusting in him, it, it, it's simple, but, but it's not necessarily easy. I mean, it, it's clear and simple, but sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes Jesus asks us to do some things that, that just are a little bit polarizing, a little bit offensive or, or in. I mean, it's not too difficult for us to, you know, champion the, the Jesus that everybody loves, the Jesus that would perform miracles. But then, every now and then, Jesus would get pretty offensive. He would get right in your face, and, and he would talk about something really uncomfortable, like repenting of, of your sin. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I love going to restaurants where there are buffets. Anybody with me on that? You just love buffets? Okay. All right, like five of us. That means we've got a lot of liars in here. <clears throat> I love buffets, and one of the reasons why I love going to restaurants where I know that I can pick and choose what I want to eat is because I can walk through that line and just pass over some dishes that may not look all that good, right? I mean, there's something empowering about a buffet where you can select what you want to eat for the next several minutes, and and inevitably, as as you walk through the buffet line, you've probably experienced this before, you you come across that entree or that dish underneath the hot lights, and you just aren't sure what it is, you know? What I'm saying? I mean, it's questionable at best. And if you look close enough, it might be moving or mold is growing over it. And, and if you've never seen something questionable on a buffet, that just means you've never been to a Chinese restaurant. Okay. That's just true. You, you know it, right? But we love buffets because it gives us a sense of control. We don't have to Overcommit ourselves to eating an entree off a menu. No, we get to pick and choose what looks good to us and then we get to avoid certain things that maybe don't look so appetizing. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, where else is it acceptable and, and can you sit down at a meal and eat a rack of lamb, some green beans, corn on the cob, mac and cheese, a cheeseburger, some cod and then a bowl of fruit loops. You know what I'm saying? Only at a buffet, right? And you're probably thinking, what buffet do you go to? I, I don't know. I mean, just throwing it out there, right? And if we're honest with ourselves, we, we tend to do the same thing with, with our faith in, in a similar kind of way. We live in a very individualistic society, and so it's, it's very much about us, and, and so when it comes to faith, and, and when it comes to our version of Jesus, we, we love to hone in on the things that make us feel comfortable. We love to, to champion the, the, the side of Jesus that, that we like, but, but then every now and then we come across some things that are just pretty offensive. I mean, we love it when Jesus says, hey, don't, don't judge lest you be judged yourself, and then he would say, hey, anybody who, who wants to follow after me, you must take up your cross, deny yourself. And follow after me. We, we don't necessarily hold, hold verses up at baseball games with that verse on it. Do you know what I'm saying? What's interesting is that whenever Jesus began talking about the kingdom of God, the masses were following him up until that point. And when he began talking about this kingdom, he turned around and all of a sudden people started walking away. All right, the few that were hanging with him eventually would abandon him as, as well. The masses became just just a few people because he was giving them some, some pretty hard teaching and, and he was being invasive and, and so they couldn't just pick and choose what, 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 to, what to follow after, what to trust in. That, that, that's, not, that's not how Jesus operates. Now, whenever we read about Jesus um, introducing this kingdom that he came to bring, we know that this is the primary reason of why he lived, why he died, and, and why he came back to life again. It, the gospel, you maybe have heard that before, the good news. It, it's not just about Jesus coming to this world, dying a death that we deserved, and then uh, defeating death by crashing his funeral and, and getting us out of hell so we can go to heaven one day. That, that's part of the gospel, okay? but it's not necessarily the full gospel. No, Jesus died and rose again so that we wouldn't have to wait on heaven, but so that we could experience heaven here and, and now. And, and so throughout this series, we're going to define the simple gospel as this, okay? The simple gospel is about experiencing the next life in, in this life, all right? That, that's a way to define God's kingdom. It's about experiencing the next life, heaven, in, in this life. And Jesus talked about the arrival of his kingdom about a hundred different times throughout the four biographies we find in scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and And whenever Jesus would begin pronouncing the arrival of his kingdom, he he followed it up with demonstrating what his kingdom is going to look like and and how what happens in the next life can become reality in this life by performing some miracles, okay? And so we're going to look at the very first miracle that Jesus performed. Uh, It's found in the book of John. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn there now. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black one either in front of you or in the seat below you or in front of you, okay? It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts towards the back of your Bibles, all right? And we're going to be in chapter uh, 2 today. Now, as you're turning there, understand that throughout John's biography on Jesus, he, he never refers to Jesus' supernatural acts as miracles. He, he calls them specifically signs. Why is that? Well, that was John's way of saying, hey, when when Jesus would perform these supernatural acts it, it was really a sign pointing people to what his kingdom is all about how the next life can become reality in this life and and so for us here today at crossroads 2018 we've got to ask ourselves, what does it really look like for me to experience the next life in this life all right we're gonna have some in, we're gonna discover some insight into that as we walk through this story pick up with me in verse one of, of john chapter two We read on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they've got no more wine. All right, they've, they've run out. The typical wedding back in the first century lasted about seven days or so. Can you believe that? Seven days. You thought the priest who married you took a long time, all right? This was a week-long festivity. You see, in this Jewish culture, weddings were a much bigger deal than they are to us today, okay? It, it It was an event that the whole community was a part of. Hospitality in this culture was a huge value. And so literally, when you threw a wedding or when you hosted an event or dinner or celebration, you were putting your reputation on the line because it was at stake. Like your guest, if they weren't shown proper hospitality, if, they, if you didn't meet their standard, then you were viewed no better than a thief. Can you believe that? And so apparently the, the family who hosted this wedding that Jesus was at didn't really plan well. They, they committed one of the biggest party fails of all time. They ran out of wine. I mean, talk about a buzzkill, literally, right? And his family was on the verge of public humiliation, I mean, disgrace was on their their future horizon. And so Jesus' mom took notice what was at stake in in this moment. I mean, maybe she sensed that that people needed a drink because the DJ kept playing the electric slide over and over and over again, right? And it was just obnoxious. Or, Or maybe the DJ kept playing a Nickelback song or Tiny Tim. I mean, I don't know, fill in the blank for you, all right? All we know is that Mary sensed that, hey, They're out of wine. Something's got to be done about this. And so check out how Jesus responds in in verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my my hour's not come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells. You don't see how Mary just completely disregards what Jesus says and says, just listen to him, okay? Now, if you're a mom listening right now, how well would you take it if you told one of your kids to do something out in public and he or she responded by saying, woman, do not involve me. Would that go over very well? Your kids might, well, Jesus told me to. (laughs) It it doesn't work. I know from experience, okay? But you see, back then, this was actually a sign of respect. This was a title of respect. Jesus was talking to his mom in a very uplifting way. Okay, there's some obvious cultural differences. But then notice how he says, mom, my my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? You see, at this point, Jesus wasn't on anybody's radar yet. He hadn't done any, any miracles and, and so Jesus also knew that, that once people started recognizing that there was something different and, and distinguishable about him by performing some supernatural act, then the clock would begin ticking away and it wouldn't stop until Jesus got to the cross. And so Jesus knew, hey, once I perform a miracle, I'm going to be noticed, and then it's only a matter of time until they end up crucifying me. Now, for some reason, Jesus began pronouncing and demonstrating what his kingdom was all about at a wedding. That seems a little bit odd, right? But you see, by by doing so, we can identify what it really looks like for us to experience the next life in, in this life. This kingdom may seem upside down at times, and that's why throughout this story, we're going to have to make some exchanges, okay? The first exchange that we see about God's kingdom goes like this. Shame is exchanged for honor. All right, shame's shame exchanged for honor. All right, Jesus knew what was at stake and, and, and what it cost to save his, this family from embarrassment. I mean, saving this couple from humiliation meant literally stepping towards his death and crucifixion. I mean, here's the thing. If Jesus was thinking about his death at a wedding, when was it not on his mind? One of the reasons why it's maybe tough for us to understand the gravity of this moment is because of is because of the differences of culture and context, okay? Our American society today, by and large, is, is defined by a guilt-innocence uh, society. What do I mean by that? Well, many of our motivations, or at least the worldview that a lot of us are accustomed to, is determined by what is right and what is wrong, a sense of, of justice, what is fair and, and what is not fair, okay? You wouldn't argue with the fact that, that you can see some things in the world that just don't don't seem right there's wrong there's brokenness right it's why we tell our kids at a very young age to behave a certain way and if they act that way then they might get punished and and even if you look throughout the past year here in America the reason why this whole me too movement has has emerged in the media is because all of a sudden people are feeling this sense of guilt for what's happened to them maybe in the past and and they want to make it right and and so we we pursue justice Why? Because our worldview, by and large, in our culture is defined by a guilt and innocence. That's how we're run. But back then, it was a little bit different, okay? Back then, the worldview was shame and honor. Alright, so everything was about your reputation. Everything that you did was, was to earn respect or uh, to gain status in your community. The worst thing that could possibly happen to you in, in, in society would be to bring shame, embarrassment, or maybe humiliation to your family name. Okay, you, you just didn't want to do that. And I bet, I bet if, you're, if you're honest with yourself, if you were to maybe take a step back and, and do some examination in your life that, that you've been maybe carrying around some shame more than you realize... Shame probably controls you and maybe determines why you do what you do or don't do for various reasons that have just gone unnoticed in your life. Maybe there was an instance in your past where, where you felt rejected, you were humiliated, you were made fun of. And, and so it, it, it's why you go out of your way maybe to be noticed, to, to be accepted, to get likes on Instagram, whatever that may be. Why is that? Well, it's, it's because of shame. There's something in your past that maybe either you did or that was done to you, okay, and you want to avoid that at all costs. And so Jesus is saving this family from a potential shame here. And he he demonstrated at this wedding that his kingdom is different than every other standard that the world has to offer. Why is that? Well, because culture back then said, hey, let this family, let this family own their mistakes. I mean, they didn't plan well. It was their fault that the wine ran out. And so Jesus let them fall on their sword. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't give them what they deserved. And and so that leads us to the second exchange that we're gonna see play out in our story. It goes like this. Religion is exchanged for access. Religion is exchanged for access. Let's keep going in our story. All right, take a look at what Jesus does after Mary tells him to uh, take care of the wine problem, okay? Verse five. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. These things are big, okay? And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the, the brim. Now, right here is a much smaller version of what these jars would have looked like in the first century, okay? They were stone and they were very heavy. And uh, at any kind of public gathering or if you had a dinner party, you provided these stone jars that was filled with water because before you ate, you had to wash your hands, right? And so, as John said, um, these jars were nearby because they were used for ceremonial washing. You see, according to the old law, Jews were required to wash their hands before a particular meal because whatever they were eating, they, didn't, they, they couldn't allow it to be defiled. And, and so it, it represented the religion that they were leaning their life on to, to save them. It, it represented the, the, the obedience or maybe the rules that they were building their life upon in hopes that, that, they could, that they could make it to heaven one day or that God would notice them, that they would have his blessings in, in his life. And yet this is a really significant moment because Jesus, okay, Jesus is about to pronounce and demonstrate the arrival of his kingdom. Something better has come, something more sufficient. All right. That, that may have been the the old way of doing things. That may have been the, the law that honestly could never save anybody because while it could maybe wash your hands, there's something that these jars couldn't do. And that was washing a heart that had been defiled by sin and corruption and darkness and brokenness. You see the cleansing process under the Jewish law couldn't do that it simply revealed the need for people to have a solution beyond themselves and and so what we see playing out in this moment is a significant pivot taking place between God and us What's that pivot all about? Well, Jesus is saying, okay, here's the old system. I'm about to do something much greater and more sufficient and something that you can count on to save you, something that will actually bring the next life to this life, which every Jew was longing for and striving for. These pots, it represented achievement. These pots, it represented striving. These pots, it represented, it represented rules. It represented standards. It represented exhaustion from religion. But Jesus is basically saying, hey, there's a new order. There's a new way of things. And in this kingdom, there's no such thing as earning." In this kingdom, there's no such thing as superiority to someone else based upon what you do. In this new kingdom I'm about to establish, there's no such thing as God loving you more because you do more for Him. Jesus is saying, no, the old order—it's about to be wiped clean. Okay, and you see, in this kingdom, here's what's so backwards and upside down: is the king of this kingdom has not only established the standard of what's required for us to be in relationship with our Creator, but the king has actually come to earth and met those standards for us who does that you see jesus when he hung upon the cross when he hung upon the cross he got what he didn't deserve so that we could live in the reality of something that we we don't deserve as a result we can walk away free as a result we can walk away forgiven with knowing that we have unlimited access to the the creator god Ironically, um, one writer in the, in the Bible called Matthew tells about a time when Jesus seemed to be okay with breaking some laws. So some religious leaders, pastors of their day, elders of their day were uh, criticizing Jesus because he was in this home of a sinner and, and Jesus wasn't upholding some of the standards of their day. And, and so knowing all this is taking place, check out what Matthew, a different biography about Jesus says. The pastor said, hey, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. In other words, Jesus, they, they aren't living up to the standard that, that has been clearly defined for us. Who, who do you think you are, right? Right? Now, one interesting detail that John gives us about this wedding is that there were six of these jars at the wedding. Okay, now hang with me here for just a second because you, you got to catch this. All right, those six jars it represented the entire law. As we've said, the number seven throughout the Bible it represents completion, it represents wholeness and perfection. Okay, the number seven from Genesis to Revelation throughout the Bible represents this wholeness and perfection that God intended for us to experience, and He designed us. For that we find in this kingdom, okay? It's equated with this kingdom that we are meant to be a part of. And so here's the thing. In this moment at the wedding, Jesus is saying, hey, you can't be that seventh jar. It has to be through me. And so let me be that seventh jar. Let me fill you. Let me complete you. Let me give you perfection that you can't deserve, that you don't deserve, and that you can't earn. The problem is, The problem isn't realizing that we need that seventh jar, salvation, access to our creator God. We accept it, we nod our heads, yep, I need to lean my life on him. But then after that moment, whenever that was for you, we tend to live life as if, as if we're, we're still underneath the six jars. We're still trying to fill those six jars back up and do things in our own power. It, it's upon us to, to make something that's empty full again. I mean, we agree that, that grace in theory is, is true, but oftentimes we fail to live it out in, in practice, right? Let me give you an example of this. All right, I've been pretty open with you about how for the past 10, 15 years I've struggled with depression from time to time, all right, and, and since i began begun talking about this a, a while ago, it's amazing to me how many of you have just come out of the word work and, and said, you know what, I, I struggle with depression too. I, I can't believe that, you know, if the pastor's right, that means I'm free to admit my struggles and, you know, uh, it, it. and what has been so sad to me is, is, to, hear, is to hear things from, from many of you that, that go like this. You know, I just didn't think the church was a safe place to talk about that. I've been so ashamed. I've never told anybody about this before. And so I just want you to know, if you ever come and talk to me about depression, I'm going to tell you the same thing. All right. If it weren't for prayer, pills and people, I don't know where I'd be. All right. I mean, that, that's just, that's just true. You don't want to see me when I'm not on my meds. Okay. But, but let me, let me tell you something. Within the past month, I've had several conversations with, with a few of you that that have gone like this. One guy I talked to, he, he was ashamed to admit that, that he was seeing a counselor. I talked to somebody else recently that that talked about, I'm ashamed to take medication because I think leaning on medication might might be sinful and and it might mean that that I'm relying upon something else other than than Jesus to find healing here. It might mean that I have some unconfessed sin in my life and you know what, that is nothing but legalism, that is nothing but a lie from the pit of hell because let me tell you something, okay? If you have a sore throat, you're gonna take medication. If you have cancer, you're gonna go through chemotherapy and so if you have some imbalance in your mind, if you struggle with anxiety, or depression, why would you not take medication? Why be ashamed of that? God has used men and women in the medical field within the past several centuries to get us to this point where medicine can actually help bring the next life to this life here and now. And so it's time for many of you to take off the mask and realize it's okay to not be okay. The point of the church is for this to be a hospital where we can find wellness and healing and wholeness only through Jesus Christ, Okay. <clears throat> Now, if I haven't offended you yet, hang on. <laughs> you think I'm kidding? <clears throat> the wine that Jesus made had alcohol in it. All right, since we're on the subject, many of you want to know is it okay if I drink alcohol? Can a Christian drink? Now, there's a stigma in a lot of churches that it's evil and you must hide it and you got to cover over it, okay? This is why so many of you hide your beer whenever I walk into the restaurant. I see you. I just want to say, if you're not going to drink it, hand it over, you know. My wife will. Where was I? I, Meds. Meds. Okay, alcohol, believe it or not, was not condemned in the church until 1826. So for 1,800 years, over 1,800 years, alcohol was viewed as a, as a gift from God. Therefore, many of us today, we confuse use of alcohol with abuse of alcohol, Right? Abusing alcohol simply exposes our our brokenness and ability to distort a gift that that God has given us. Drunkenness, it it reveals our innate desire for something greater than this life. It reveals our tendency to want to avoid the pain and evil and the reality of this life. It's why G.K. Chesterton said it like this Every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is really searching for God. And so the Bible lays out a few boundaries when it comes to drinking, okay? Don't get drunk. And if you want to know, what does that look like? If you posted a picture that you don't remember posting and you're standing on a table singing Garth Brooks, I don't know where that came from, okay, but... That just might define drunk, okay? Don't drink if you're with somebody who struggles with with an alcohol addiction. That would be causing them to stumble. Thirdly, don't look down on another believer, okay, who has a different conviction than you. To drink or not to drink, honestly, is your choice. There's freedom there according to what the Bible says. And so if you're trying to decide, should I drink or should I not? Here's what I encourage you to do. Pray about it. Read some passages of scripture that talk about it. Make your decision. And whatever decision you go with, enjoy that decision. Don't feel guilt over it. Move on, because there are far more important things to worry about in this life than that. All right? That's what what the Bible would say. There's freedom there. And ironically, I can't think of another story in Scripture that challenges our inner tendency towards legalism than this one. And so let's pick back up in in verse 8. And you guys think this is water. (laughs) 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 Kidding. Then he told them, "Now dr- <laughs> I don't know where they. Gets- now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet." They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He, he did not realize where to come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, "Hey, everyone brings out the choice wine first, the good stuff first, and then the cheaper wine comes later on, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best till now." Jesus doesn't just make Boone's Farm Merlot from Walgreens, all right? He makes the best of the best. That's what John says. You would drink the well-aged wine first at at weddings so you still were of present mind and you were still sober-minded to be able to enjoy it so you could remember it. Now, here again, we see the inverted nature of, of God's kingdom, of the simple gospel. We want immediate gratification now and then pay for it later, and this is just within our nature. That's why we tend to be very impatient at times. And so could it be that, that our obsession for quick fixes, self-help books, overnight weight loss plans, and complete home makeovers reveals this internal drive for happiness at all cost? And yet if we're honest, we still feel empty at the end of the day. We know that something isn't right. And so by turning water into the finest of wines, Jesus flips this script here and he unveils a third feature of his kingdom that goes like this, that happiness is exchanged for joy. Happiness is exchanged for joy. The American dream and the pursuit of happiness in itself is not a bad, evil thing, okay? Like all of our desires, the the root desire is actually from God himself, but the over-desire for anything, even good things, is idolatry at our core. And happiness is no exception. But happiness is temporary and it's fleeting. It it depends completely upon our circumstances. It it looks for an individual to maybe meet a need that, that only God can fill. On the other hand, joy is, is lasting. Right, it's this radical contentment that results from knowing that the God is in the process of bringing the next life to this life and we're gonna experience it at some point. And the Jews at this wedding knew that the wine, it symbolized joy in God's favor because throughout their history, God would oftentimes provide wine for the Jews as a way to bless them for their obedience. And the opposite is true as well. If God was trying to warn them upon his, of his impending judgment that was about to come upon them, he would remove wine from them, and that was a signal to them that God is removing his presence from us. Now, this wine represents the joy that Jesus intends for us to experience. And yet, if you think about it, this drink also represents sacrifice, Because Jesus knows as soon as that water turns to wine that that wine is going to take on a completely different meaning in in just a little while. He knows that this wine that that has been transformed in these little jars is is going to eventually represent his blood that is going to be poured out and shed upon the cross when he is and, and will be that sacrifice to save us for all of, all of eternity. And so think about it, think about it like this. This moment foreshadowed Jesus' future sacrifice on the cross that would cost him the shedding of his blood. And so literally our joy, our joy came at his cost. It cost him everything. And I get it that it seems a little bit strange that Jesus would choose a wedding to proclaim and demonstrate the arrival of his kingdom. I mean, what, what's that all about, right? Well, one time, a, a messenger of God by the name of Isaiah was given this vision about what, what the, the next life will be like, the, the moment that the, we all gather together and, and, the, and the new heaven is brought to the new earth and, and we experience perfection for all of time. Okay, Isaiah says that the very first thing that we're all going to do for those who have trusted in Jesus are going to experience this. Okay, On this mountain, the Lord will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. All right, this was Isaiah's attempt to describe the, the perfection that we'll start to experience at this celebration. And so that means that literally right now in this moment we find ourselves in between weddings, in between the wedding that we read about in John chapter two and the wedding that is to come when the next life becomes our complete, full, perfect reality for, for all of time. And so let, let, let's bring this home. All right, before Jesus got a hold of these jars at, at the wedding, that there just there wasn't much to them, all right? They sat there empty, they weren't fulfilling their purpose, that they they they, they They they, they were empty. I mean, there was no water. There was not even water in them before he told the servants to go and and fill them to to the brim. I mean, they were just sitting there. They were empty. And so these empty jars, these empty jars represented shame for the family. These empty jars represented disappointment. These empty jars represented failure. These empty jars represented a a lack of planning on their part. These empty jars represented the fact that that they were were on the verge of public humiliation. It it, it was a reminder to them that, that, you know what, we don't measure. Up, we have failed, we just aren't good enough. And then Jesus says, Hey, let me have those jars and pour some water in them. And, and these servants bring these six jars to, to the feet of Jesus. Maybe they just laid them down like that. And here, here, here's the thing for you and I we We have some empty jars in our life. What do I mean by that? We see empty jars represent maybe a part of your life where God's kingdom has yet yet to reign. It's it's a part of your life that you're maybe still hanging on to, okay? It's a part of your life where you you haven't really experienced God's best. You haven't really experienced his fullness, okay? You haven't, you haven't surrendered maybe that part of your life. Maybe it's your, your marriage. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe, maybe it's your emotions. Maybe it's, it's how you deal with anger. Maybe you're lacking forgiveness towards someone. And do you know, do you know the one thing that will keep us from experiencing the next life in this life? Hanging on to these jars. Pride. Pride says, no, I, I got it. Pride says, no, it, it wasn't my fault. Pr- Pride says, I, I, I don't need to accept responsibility for that. Pride points fingers, pride blames. Pride says, no, I, I, l- let me just have one more try. I promise that won't happen again. Pride continues to deflect. Pride continues to, to suppress. It continues to cover over things. When Jesus the entire time says, man, if you just give me your empty jars, I can transform something that is empty and I can produce something that is amazing. That's what it looks like to experience the next life and, and this life. And, and so, so here's, here's what I wanna leave with you. What part of your life right now Lacks wholeness when you think of an empty jar, what, what comes to mind? Is it maybe your kids, maybe parenting right now, perhaps it 's a job okay i, I don 't know what that is for you, but but here 's my challenge to you this week. each and every day when you wake up, okay, I want you just to figuratively or maybe in your mind, I want you to have a conversation with God if this seems weird to you, just just try it, okay, you have nothing to lose, and in your mind, I just want you to say, okay Jesus this doesn 't make sense to me. But the empty jar of my marriage right now, the empty jar of that person at work who hurt me, I, I'm giving it over to you. Every single day and, and, and let's see together, if the empty jar is collectively as a church, Jesus can make some wine that's just out of this world because you know what? When we give over the jars to Jesus, that's when we experience the next life in, in this life. Let's pray. Jesus, you are, you are good. A lot of us walk in here today lacking purpose, lacking significance. A lot of us walk in here today with some questions and some doubts and we've got some parts of our life that, that we know isn't right and, and we can feel it. It doesn't take a real long investigation to realize it. it's the marriage, it's how I'm viewing this, whatever that may be. Jesus, would. would you give us the courage to let go of our jars and to let you do what you do best and that is to transform What is broken to transform what is lacking wholeness and and to do something miraculous it doesn't necessarily matter what what did it look like the moment the the water became wine How, how how did that take place i don't know we've got a lot of questions but jesus can you do that in our life would you teach us to
0: surrender to you and trust you more and more each day it's in your name we pray amen